You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. So today, well it wasn't today, but the other day I had the good fortune of chatting with my good friend Craig Thorburn who is, oh, well he's had a life and um, I'm just going to um, say um once more because it's just so good. It's like they say, it's, it's just the best thing you can say on radio. This is not radio, this is a podcast so you can say um. Um, anyway, Craig was, uh, so kind to have me out to his property. He's got a, uh, really nice bit of land. He's had quite a wild ride of life, but, um, he was looking after his daughter, Tina's dog and the dog had just had a hip replacement. Um, I think the, the left hip and so the dog was in the room and, and the dog was just so good. It's got to be tied up, bound for six weeks. Can't leave the cage, really. And he was so quiet up until about the 50, 50, 50 minute, 55 minute mark. And it was just, it was a little bit too much. The poor little fella needed some attention and I, we couldn't keep going with the podcast. So this is a part one of part two of Craig Thorburn's life. Um, thanks, Craig. I, I really um, appreciate you letting me come over and have the chat. Um, so I haven't put one out for a little while, a podcast that is. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's, um, you know, life, 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 life's full. Um, and also I, I changed hosts. Now, this is really boring. You don't really want to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I had to change hosts and I was uploading my stuff to uh, Apple iTunes, whatever it is, from one host, and I was uploading to Spotify from another host, and I was thinking this is double handling. <clears throat> I'm not making. Uh, it's it's it's. Uh, I need to consolidate and go to one host. So then I had to quit the one that I was doing the Apple. So therefore, I lost my Apple. Um, you know my Apple. What what do you fuck? I, I lost my Apple thing. So my podcast wasn't on Apple anymore. Then I had to resubmit it to Apple, go through the whole process once again. I lost all my followers, likes, and comments. So if you care to, I, I would love a like, comment, or follow. Um, and anyway, now it's all back up and running. We've got the streamline. It's coming from one, goes to both. Uh, I'm happy that I've done it, but it was, you know, oh, it was just annoying. It was a really annoying process, actually, but um, that's life. That's life. How many little annoying processes do we have to go through today to get what we want? Uh, quite a lot. Anyway, whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope you are well out there in the world. Um, today's been a great day. There's waves. <laughs> I put a line pretty much through the calendar. And I uh, had two pretty good surfs. So, um, you know, I've got a lot to smile about. Anyway, life's good. I hope life's sh- smiling on you wherever you are. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with uh, with Craig. You All think right. this is, is interesting? Wow. Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. Moved out to the country. They moved to a farm like 30 miles out of town. This is 1958, right? Okay, but in 58, which town were you in? Uh, it was outside of Fresno. Our address was a place called Clovis. Yeah. Yeah, but we were outside of Clovis as well. We were on 80 acres about 20 miles out of town. Um, which is, the reason that's interesting is that it's, I mean, now they got a term for it. They call it tree changer, you know. But at, my parents were professionals. My dad was a surgeon, you know, and my mom was a, was a nurse that she'd taken off to, um, raise a bunch of kids first, but then she went back and taught nursing. You know, they were, they were sort of highly trained, highly upwardly mobile, you know, people. And um, after my dad had established his practice, they did the the doctor thing, and you build this sprawling adobe with five bath- bathrooms. And you what know, does the, adobe mean? Adobe is a it's a pounded earth brick. It was it was um, that was the the modern architecture of the time where in that part of the world was adobes. It's, you know, Spanish style, Mexican style. Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 
And so there's this low, sprawling house with all these sort of wings and bathrooms and bedrooms. And, and um, in the up-and-coming new suburb on the north side of town, you know, and they lived there for two years and kind of looked around and said, nah, not for us. And bought this dilapidated old drafty wooden farmhouse, you know, on 80 acres of, of dirt, 30 miles out of town. And that was, I mean, that was just really, you know, we were the only, um, only people at my elementary school who were, uh, you know, of the, of the educated class, of the upper middle class. Everybody else were, were they were like what we called Okies that missed Bakersfield in the fog. <laughs> Or they were, or they were Mexican farm workers. That was who I went to school with. So even in '56, excuse my ignorance, um, Mexicans were being exploited in California. Or oh, that goes back generations. That goes back. Um, I mean, they've had they've had various programs. They had the Bracero program, where it was actually, you know, guest workers could come, you know, on a special guest worker visa. That goes back to the 1920s. Um, well, I mean. Mexicans were there before white people were. I mean, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So when you put yeah. the borders up, they're already like, "Hey, hold on." Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but agricultural workers from Mexico. I mean, California, Fresno County, where I grew up, is the most productive agricultural county in the United States of America. Still to today, um, in terms of dollar value of crops, yes. Wow. This year, it it there's three in Central California that sort of vie for top honors, and this year again, it was Fresno. That is incredible. Well, it's because of it's it's high value stuff. It's it's almonds and citrus and. So, but um, if it's in California. Where do they get the water from? That's the thing is we're right next to the Sierra Nevada, so they've got. I mean, there's there's glacier. There's a glacier, you know, about two hundred miles from where I grew up. Okay. You know, they get snowfall every year, and the yeah. snow melts, and then it goes down into rivers, and the. Um, do you have to buy that water? Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's very very cheap. The, uh, in fact, up until, I believe, around the Second World War, the, the Kings River was the largest man-made irrigation system in the world. And they called it because they called it a river. Well, no, the Kings River was, was dammed. It was Pine Flat Dam, and then they put that into canals that then would spread um, irrigation water all across the, this, the Central Valley as far as it could go. And until they built things like the California Aqueduct and the... Uh, um, is that the what Owens Ch- Valley system? Is that what um, China? This was this was a different one. That's that's Owens Valley. That's that, further south. What, what's the movie called? Chinatown. Chinatown. That's what Chinatown's about. Water, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was stealing agricultural water for Los Angeles, and that that story is still going on. You know, and um, it was a big deal in the '60s. They built the the California Aqueduct at that time, which actually takes water from Northern California, from the Sacramento River Delta, and um, takes it down the canal all the way down to the bottom of the Central Valley and then pumps it up over a mountain range. And those pumps are still the, the biggest consumer of electricity in California. And most of that water then goes into Los Angeles. But uh, it also it funds agribusiness. Or it supports agribusiness. It's, it's huge. I mean, that's, that's, it's a huge taxpayer-funded scheme to move water all around the landscape because that is yeah it's practically desert i think that where i grew up we get 13 inches of rain a year and i think the official classification of desert is 12 inches and yet you're the most luke not lucrative but the highest output of highest earning agricultural region in the world yeah isn't that like and it's all irrigated it's it's all this it's alluvial it's beautiful soil it's alluvial you know it, it used to be an inland sea and so it's all this this sort of sandy loam that's washed down from the mountains no rocks in it no clay pan and it's just beautiful and then you got this pure snow melt that they capture in dams and then distribute through canal systems and um you can grow anything and is that inland from the famous wine wine region that's um they grow grapes there and some of those grapes, they they do have wineries, but it's uh, that's cask wine country. The good stuff, <laughs> <laughs> the the good stuff is further north, up in Napa, Sonoma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's north of the San Francisco Bay, and it's climatologically more similar to you know the southern France where they grow the, the good vineyards there. But that's all with climate change. That's all moving north. You know, it's becoming too. Sick. Too hot and too arid to grow good wine in the traditional wine growing regions, and so they're actually they're opening up new vineyards in in Oregon and Washington. To 
So yeah, right. Accommodate to climate change. We're not going to give up our drop just because the climate's burning up. Oh, no. There's <laughs> a <laughs> shift. Um, so, okay. Okay, so, so anyway, this is yeah. agricultural area, um, small town, um, lower socioeconomic at the time. Uh, now it's all suburbs. It's all posh suburbs, actually. Um, farm school and... and, and uh, we were the we were the ace kids in school because you know we we just we had the helicopter mom you know several generations before that term even existed you know and mm-hmm. we all we all participated in all the extracurricular activities and she drove us around to piano lessons and we were in sports and we were in student politics and and we had to have perfect you know uh, report cards I got one B in high school. And my mother actually went and made a meeting with the with the teacher and the principal to to argue that that was probably incorrect. You were a straight A student. <laughs> I was a straight A student. No, no, I wasn't. I got one B, so I was the salutatorian at graduation. No, I'm calling you a straight A student. That is. <laughs> well, you see, I was third in in of four, and so by the time I came along, all the teachers kind of said, "Oh, another Thorburn," you know, just bang. <laughs> so it was a straight A to do without having to do homework or you So know. you you didn't have to try too hard, it was just there. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was already the the skids were already greased for me by the time I got there. Awesome. <laughs> and so what sports were you playing? Uh I wasn't very good actually. Um not basketball? Well, okay, that was that was part of the part of the deal with being a Thorburn was that uh, we had to do two sports. We had to excel in two sports, and, and um, the sports I went out for were basketball, and I sucked. I just, I was just too clumsy, you know. And the the, the shorter guys would always, st- I couldn't dribble, you know. You yeah. gotta dribble the ball. Couldn't with- they just put you like in front of the goal? Well, you got, there's a three second rule. You have to stay outside the. Oh, the key. <laughs> stay okay. outside the key. Yeah. Uh, and even then, I wasn't. You know, the coach kept saying, you know, in my um, when the the freshman sophomore team, the first and second year junior team. You know, the, the junior coach says that the varsity coach is always, you give me Thorburn with a four-town turnaround, four-foot four turnaround jumper, you know, and we'll be unstoppable. <laughs> so that was what they were training me to do, a four-foot from the, from the hoop turnaround dump, jump shot, and that was supposed to be, you know, we were going to yeah, be yeah, Clovis High School's yeah, secret weapon. Yeah, take on I Russia. I couldn't do it. I yeah. just, you know, I was about, about one for 16 on my four-foot turnaround jumpers. I couldn't do a layup. I sucked at basketball. But, but the more important, and then, and then my other sport was swimming, and I was very good at it. Yeah. Yeah. I had, for a long time, I actually had the school record in the 50-yard freestyle. And I did backstroke as well. Um, but it was, it was 1967, 68, um, the most important thing in my life was I wanted to grow my hair long and be a hippie. You know, and, and the high school didn't allow that. And the sports coaches insisted on crew cuts. And that was the end of my sporting career. You know, that was, uh-huh. I wouldn't do it. I, and so that was a huge fight. You know, it, it initiated sort of decades-long battle with my mother, you know. And how was your <laughs> mom? I was the first woman to not, to quit a sport. Yep. You know, and that was just not okay. So that was a battle between you, the teachers, and your parents? Um, or they on the, your the side? The teachers, you know, what they they were disappointed, but they they didn't have a dog in that fight. Actually, yeah, okay. this was between me and mom. Yeah, you know, I was rebel. But that's the thing is, 1967 came along. I was 14 years old, right? And and like the hippies were on the cover of Time magazine, and I and I just looked at that and I said, that's. That's it. Yeah, you know, yeah. Wow. You know, you know, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And, and symbol. My, my ambition was, you know, to, to take part in that, you know, to be part of the anti-Vietnam War protests and, and love-ins, you know, and, and, and Grateful Dead concerts. That was it. You know? I mean, I remember, you know, going up to San Francisco was kind of a dorky tourist from, you know, from Fresno. And going to the Haight Ashbury, you know, and, and all the little sort of head shops, them little button shops, and selling the psychedelic poster shops, you know. And, and I just was, this is it, man. 
this is it. I know. And I'd get my, my one little psychedelic poster that I took home and put on my bedroom wall, you know, a picture of Jefferson Airplane. It was like, wow, you know. And yet, um, had to grow my hair, you know, had to constantly be called into the principal's office. Of, you know, your hair's over your collar, go home. And I'd, no, that's wrong. George Washington had long hair. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Epic battles. That was that was my introduction to politics. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, the hippie movement and, and your your drawing to that um, did that that stay? Did you become a hippie? Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, I, I I'm I'm still sort of a. a ex-hippie wannabe <laughs> yeah an educated yeah yeah um i mean i never you know the the people that that i really wanted to be you know they they, they actually ran away from home you know and, and yeah lived on the streets of san francisco and i i never quite had the courage to do that but i I I dressed as much as I could like a hippie, and I talked and I danced as much as I could like a hippie, and I and I tried really hard to smoke weed as much as I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was my next question. Was it like well, I heard the one guy look? say one time? He says, "Yeah, I smoked a lot of weed to get us out of Vietnam, man." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was gonna, so it was the whole package, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know why, but when I was of similar age, I was really drawn to Vietnam. Hmm. Like I, I, my first play that I ever read was the screenplay of Platoon. Mm-hmm. Like I had bought had all the all the shit. I don't know why, but I just wanted. I felt like I should have been, or maybe I died there. I don't know. But, huh. You know, huh. I was all about it as a. Okay, I mean that was that was certainly a very very important thing that was going. It was the first televised war. You know, so we saw it on the on the TV news every night. You know, um, I was of the generation that was, you know, being sent over there and shot up. And um, a lot of kids from my school went to Vietnam. A lot of kids from my high school went to Vietnam. The majority of them, probably. Yeah. Uh, because they were of that socioeconomic. You know, the wars were fought by poor people and by people of color. And and uh, I would have, you know, I'm more the I would have had bone spurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like America's illustrious president. Or, you know, I would have got a a student deferment until that was done away with. And then, you know, I could have got some other kind of deferment. And I could have, or I would have gone to Canada. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have gone to war. I wouldn't have, I was not of the the class of people who went to Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, Nor, I mean, and I absolutely opposed it. You know, I um, would have probably tried to make a, you know tried to make a statement of you know be a conscientious objector on on grounds of I don't want to go <laughs> or or go to Canada I don't know but it didn't come to that I the the year that I uh, became eligible for selective service they you have to eligible and register for the draft at the age of 18 um, you have to register personally yeah yeah what happens if you don't um, do they know like how yeah, do they know yeah they know from just be, from I don't know DMV Department of Motor Vehicle Records, or well, if they know, why do they make you register? It's kind of an automatic process. I mean, you know, you you get a letter saying you have to register and you have to return the letter, kind of thing. Yeah. And if you don't return the letter, you get another one. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's like a spending fine. <laughs> it's, it's not like you don't you don't actually go there and face and up until you get a call. Mm-hmm. You know, and the year that I did that, they introduced a lottery, and I drew a high number, so I wasn't, you know, and then they. Um, I remember the night that they announced the lottery. So you were in the lottery. Yeah, yeah. I was in the lottery. Yeah, but my my birth date came up. I was think I was two hundred and seventy one or something like that. And that year they called up to about eighty or so. the The war was winding down at that time. Nixon was president. He was trying to get America out because protest was um, taking root, you know, and the, the public opinion was turning against the war. And, and rightly so. Have you seen that? And rightly so. Have you seen the ten-part um, documentary on Netflix about it? Ken yes, Burns. Yes, Ken Burns. That was brilliant. Wow, absolutely brilliant. That was the most comprehensive look at any war I ever, ever mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No wonder that you guys got your ass handed to you with. Oh, we did too. But, but with them having been drilled by the French for how long beforehand? They were ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the one lesson I think that the American government learned from from losing that war was that you don't let the press in 
without having complete control over what they see and what they say. You know, and that's where they invented, you know, and so subsequent wars, you know, the, the, both of the wars in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and things like that, um, the military has complete control over the, you know, the placement of embedded journalists. Mm -hmm. you know, and so they, they present the war to the public as, as they want it to be seen. You know, um, just this week I got sent a trailer to, and while we're on this topic, um, to the documentary of a famous actor's son was becoming a B-grade actor in that in this time period, mm -hmm. and he got jack of it and left and became a war journalist in Vietnam. And he's like one of the biggest actors of that generation time's son. So he was like very well known. Went to Vietnam became a famous journalist. He was putting himself, he even threw hand grenades, like he was witnessed at seeing, mm. like he started to engage in the war mm. and he was corresponding back home and then he disappeared. And um, he disappeared into Cambodia and the character, remember the character by Dennis Hopper in Apocalypse Now? Yeah. That's based on him. Wow. And so it's this guy was a real person. Dennis Hopper's character was a real person that went off, went rogue. And, uh, yeah, the, the, his life documentary is coming out soon. Wow. Yeah, I'll send, I'll send you the link. It's Excellent. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Too. Yeah. It, yeah, the, the, the psychological damage done by that war. I mean, it was, there, there was a lot going on. It was, it was fought by baby boomers, you know. And I mean, I'm a baby boomer, you know. And, and baby boomers, we... We're a, um, an unprecedented sociological phenomenon, at least the United States baby boomers in particular, because um, when there was one, there was a lot of us. You know that just happens after wars. People make lots and lots of babies after wars. You know, that's just historically you can you can see that in societies and all in war zones all across the world. Um, Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Is it a subconscious thing? It's um, subconscious. Well, I don't think anybody's making a decision. Oh my God, we've lost so many young men that we need to we need to do our patriotic duty and make babies. I don't think it's you know it's conscious in that regard. But but no, the, yeah. After you know when the war's over, people just they fuck like bunnies. You know they just you know and and yeah they make lots of babies. They, celebrate life. Yeah, they celebrate life. Um, and the other thing that happened. See, America survived World War II intact. Yeah, there were casualties. We didn't take the same level of casualties. Um, per capita of any of the other major countries that were involved in that war, but there was no damage whatsoever to the to the productive capacity of America. And America had geared up. You know, it was kind of a a second-rate country until the Second World War. It had lots and lots of wealth, lots of uh, um, minerals and agricultural products and things like that. But it wasn't an industrial powerhouse by any means. But um, in the Second World War, they geared up, you know, and produced the steel and the chemical industries and the, and the munitions and, and built this incredible, incredible industrial base. And then that was, you know, in full flight when the war ended, you know, and, and it's, there's full employment. And, and that's when they invented sort of conspicuous, they invented um, planned obsolescence, you know, because they had to figure out some way to keep all these factories going and cranking out stuff. And so they had to, to create this new consumerism, you know, where people would just buy and buy and, and just keep the factories going. So you got to get a new car every couple of years because mine doesn't have the right kind of, right shape, it doesn't have taillights that are shaped like Marilyn Monroe's boobs or it doesn't have, you know, rocket ship <laughs> fins on it or, you know, so yeah. you got to get, and, and new toasters and, new, you know, and so, and, and baby boomers are growing up in this, this new consumer era and we're being spoiled with all this new stuff and we just, and then there were so many of us that by the time we get to sort of adolescence and early adulthood, we're a force. We're like a market force and a, and a voting block. You know, that the, the Vietnam War was actually, you know, it's because there were so many frightened and pissed off young men that, that politics shifted, you know, fundamentally, you know, at that time because uh, we didn't want to go. You know? And so we just, we had this, this crazy power and we've continued. 
You yeah. still have it today. Until old age. I mean, we're the ones that fucked this planet for sure. Because you know? I mean, we, we just we just grew up consuming like mad and just taking and, and and then we got rich and we became conservative and we voted for like Reagan and and John Howard and and, and Well, there's only two Trump, two right? young world leaders. There'd be Kim Kim Jong Kim Jong Un. He's pretty uh, young. Yeah. And there would be um Trudeau. Trudeau, yeah. Uh, who else? Macron. Macron is fairly young. Is he French? Yeah. There's a French Emmanuel okay. Macron, yeah. Th- three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're all uh, millennials, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, but I digress. Um, actually, what, what was the question? <laughs> no, there wasn't really a question. <laughs> okay. um, but so we, we went from hippies into Vietnam War and we were talking about that. was good. The, I, I mean, I can talk about that war. Uh-huh. And, not the, and, and you know, the funny thing is I said I really wanted to go, yeah. but it wasn't too many years later when I did find weed that I jumped ship completely and there's no fucking way you would have ever got me to war. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, so around this time, you've flown through school. Did you know what you went to university? We did, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We went to university. I went to UC Berkeley. Did you take time off between? No, I went no, straight straight, to, straight to UC Berkeley. Actually, I, um, I got, I didn't quite finish high school because, like, I, I was sailing through with straight A's, and and um, but. But I was getting in trouble, you know. Like everybody knew how much pot I was smoking, you know. And and I remember the guy who was the vice principal of school. I learned many years later, actually, he he owned a, a property with some some acres and some citrus outside of town. And he and he heard a, a ruckus, and he goes out to investigate, and it was a bunch of school kids led by Craig Thorpe <laughs> who were out there sitting around smoking pot and taking our clothes off and stuff, you know, in his, in his orange grove, you know, and he kind of just, oh, shit, you know, because you can't arrest them, they're the, the yeah. prominent family in town, you know, so he just kind of snuck away, and I didn't learn until many years later that he was kind of, that, that put him in an uncomfortable position, he says, you're breaking the law on my property, and I'm the school vice principal, now don't, don't do that kind of thing, you know, okay, <laughs> because a lot of the other kids that I was getting high with, they did get busted. There were a couple of police sweeps that that rounded up a bunch of troublemaker kids, and you know, and then they they got put in juvenile hall for a few weeks, and they they ended up going to a thing called continuation school, and their lives were pretty messed up after that, you know. And then you don't you don't have good prospects after that, you know. It doesn't look good on your resume that you're a graduate of continuation school, you know. And most of them ended up having pretty hard lives, you know. I didn't. Um, what happened was. My mother got so alarmed that I was, you know, at some point they were going to have to arrest me because I was so blatant <laughs> that, that she, um, she took me out of school and sent me to Japan just for a few months during what would have been my senior year in high school. Wow. And I went and stayed in Japan with my, I had an aunt and uncle in Japan. My my father's younger brother worked for General Electric. He actually, he was a, a nuclear engineer and he they built Fukushima. Right. So, wow. The he, brains, was, he was the vice president of Japan Nuclear Fuel. The brains and I went and in stayed, your family. Yeah, I come from a, a, a family of successful people. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so that, so, and then I, uh, years later, I, they, Clovis High School actually sent me a diploma in the mail. But in the meantime, I had been accepted at UC Berkeley based on my transcript. That, um, and, I, and I went to Berkeley and it was, I mean that was absolutely wonderful. I gotta say. Oh, hold on, hold on, back it up. You just jumped. I want to. How was your time in Japan? Did you love it? Was it culture shock? Did we smoking was, weed there? What this was, was going my on? this was my second international experience because I was also I was an exchange student before that. I went to Indonesia uh, when I was about sixteen for just for a summer for three months. What year was that one? That, that would have been nineteen seventy. So what would have been seventeen? I was seventeen years old. Um, yeah, I, I was an exchange student. I went to Yogyakarta. Stayed with a family called the Wiriwat Mojos. They made batik for a living. What's that? A batik is the, the wax-resist cloth you know, that's used for traditional Japanese clothing. Okay. Yeah. Um, they, were, they were a lovely sort of middle-class conservative, just a, just a wonderful, wonderful family. Um, I'm jumping ahead, but I just recently went back and had a visit with my 96-year-old Indonesian mother. She, she's... 
blind and and quite forgetful but she still there was enough and and i can you can barely hear her and she's bedridden and uh, but she still had enough going on that she laid like two guilt trips on me and <laughs> in the 30 minutes that we were together <laughs> and she would have been thrilled to see you she couldn't see oh yeah sorry <laughs> she was <laughs> yeah yeah no, we know yeah that uh, um metaphorically <laughs> metaphorically yeah they, i mean they're they're an absolutely wonderful family and I, that was a wonderful privilege and and um you know i ended up spending a good portion of my life in indonesia but we we're getting ahead of ourselves we're going back to japan how was japan Japan was really weird. You know, um, it's it's stunningly beautiful. I fancied myself an artist at the time, and I and I um, I loved the aesthetic of Japanese architecture and Japanese ceramics, and I that I made ceramics, I, and and so I traveled all around, you know, um, and I visited all these these you know, temples and, and traditional communities, and I and I um, and some pottery making centers and things like this, and. And stayed in youth hostels, and it was probably the loneliest time of my life. I found Japan very, very inaccessible. I mean, just people were very polite and things like that, but I just, um, it, of all the different places I've been in the world, and I've been many, that was the one where I had the hardest time, sort of making human con contact. And it wasn't until. The, the trip was winding up, you know, I'd been there for like four months and, I, um, and I'd been going around on their wonderful train system and whatnot. And one day I decided, I'm just going to, I'm going to stick my thumb out and I'm going to hitchhike. And hitchhiking in Japan, which at that time, I mean, hitchhiking was a very common thing in, in California. They don't do it anymore, but at that time, that's how I got around in California. You know? um, but I hadn't tried, I, for some reason, you know, I didn't speak, hardly spoke any Japanese at all. And so I was a, a bit timid, but I thought, what the heck, you know, and I stuck up my thumb and hitchhiked. And that is an incredible experience. As soon as you get picked up hitchhiking in Japan, you are going home with that person. You know, they're, <laughs> they're taking you home and introducing you to their mother. And, and next thing you know, you're like naked in their traditional kitchen, scooping water out of a wooden tub and taking a bath while mom cooks you dinner. And, and you're and you you have to spend the night there, and you know when you're sleeping on you know on mats on the tatami floor, and 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 then you leave and you're laden with gifts, and it's just it was just incredible, you know. Once you're in, there is no hospitality like Japanese hospitality. But I just for some reason bridging that, I didn't figure out you know I didn't figure out the secret until the trip was almost over, you know. So I had like two fabulous experiences in Japan, but prior to that, it was it was it was a terribly lonely experience. So do you think that um, that was like a, a reflection of the period and time, or would it still be like that today? Um, I, a bit of both. Bit of both. Um, I, th I think that you know Japanese traditional structures and norms and behaviors are incredibly resilient, and those still persist. And and that that polite reserve would would make it hard for a for a timid, lonesome teenager to to, to make contact. I think that that still would be the case. Mm -hmm. you know? But the, on the other hand, the the incredible hospitality they have perhaps institutionalize that and develop that and, are, and are make that more accessible to their foreign visitors now, you know, because since that time, international travel to Japan has, has increased, you know, they held, they've held some Olympics there, you know, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an international destination and people are going there for, to have that Japanese experience. And so I think it's more accessible now than it would have been when I was there. Mm -hmm. But that was, that was more about me. The loneliness was just, that was what was going on with me. I just, I was afraid. You know, and everybody was very, very polite. Why did your mum just say, "All right, just to break the cycle that you're in, to try and get you to"? Yeah, yeah. Well, and to keep me out of harm's way, you know, until I could get back and then go off to Berkeley, where it didn't matter as much because everyone was getting high. Yeah. Well, it's got a great reputation too, though. Me. She was protecting me, and you know, and and, and had the op, you know, the. the um, options to do that, you know, by having relatives living there. And, and in fact, during a previous visit, you know, some, a year or two before, you know, um, when my aunt and uncle had come and visited in California, they said, oh, 
you should send Craig. He'd love it, you know, because I was trying, you know, I was trying to be art. I was, I was a potter. I was actually, I was actually pretty good. So is this where Tina gets her streak from? No, she did that entirely on her own. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I encourage her, and I've, um, I've helped her with a few ideas and things, and I've helped her build the studio and things like that. But no, it was her, it was her initiative. She just took lessons at a private studio in Brunswick and, and took to it. It's still going. Yeah, yeah, it's it great. Quite well, yeah. So, um, Berkeley. Berkeley. What were you studying in Berkeley? Well, I was an art student when I first arrived. Yeah. Well, one of the the, the things, the wonderful thing about um, tertiary education in America, and this is this is less true today than it was then. But uh, it's still, it's structured that you, I didn't have to declare a major for my first two years there. You know, you don't start out in IT, you know, or, or law, you know, you just, you start out and you have like all these sort of breadth subjects that you have to take, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of civics, a little bit of government, you know, a little bit of economics, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of psychology and, um, say what you like, you know, and, and then, um, you just, you, you wallow in ideas for a couple of years and you sort of find yourself when you get your direction and by year three you are de- you're required to specialize you know and you declare a major you know and so I mean I, I went in there and, and um, thought I wanted to be an artist and thought I wanted to study art Berkeley's not the best place to do it. they do have an art department but it's not it's not an art school by you know anyway um, and so I'm taking you know I'm taking the many of the Brett subjects and I'm also taking a lot of arts classes and I was and I had a lot of fun you know but it's kind of I had the feeling then that I was like a little bit too late you know that all the really cool stuff had happened before I got there you know People's Park you know, and, and well the free speech movement was way back in 64 or so but um, and by the time I got there one um, they had more or less stop, ended the draft, you know. After the, after the lottery thing, the next year they, they sort of professionalized the army and they just made it a, an entirely volunteer force that, you know, so that just people with no employment prospects would sign up and go. And, and the, the American contingent that was being sent across was, was much smaller by then. And so that took the, the wind out of the, the big protests, you know. I missed all the great big anti-war marches. And so there were still marches, you know. There were still protests, but by this time they were kind of... They were kind of desultory, and they were um, there were more people that just kind of wanted to smash plate glass windows. You know, it wasn't it was no longer this this self righteous movement. You know, about you know the changing the political order of the world. It was just some, some angry young men that that liked the you know. real hippie movement had sort of glided by a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they they'd held a, the year before I got there. They actually in the summer they held a, a funeral. Of, of the hippie movement in the Haight-Ashbury district and all these sort of, you know, flowered VW vans and drove off into the sunset and set up communes out in, in the, the forests of Sonoma and became pot farms. And, and because by that time, it, it, Haight-Ashbury had become pretty tawdry as well, you know. It was, there was increasing sort of a homelessness and crime and, and heroin and, you know, it's, it kind of petered out. It was, it was pretty... Uh, grubby by yeah. the time I got there, and I just thought I just I just missed the boat on this stuff, and it it to me it reflected in the art department too, you know the, it seems to me that the only, it seems just a little bit cynical, you know that the we we'd have these these sort of seminars and we'd spend a semester making some kind of piece of work or a body of work, and then at the end of it you'd have a critique, you know, and and it seems like the sole characteristic. Uh, criteria, the whole sole criteria for determining whether a piece of art was good or not was that it had to be, it, it had to bear no resemblance to anything, nor it could, nor would it be, or it would be trite, you know, so and, the, and the, derivative, you know, and yeah. it couldn't be, it couldn't be representational, it couldn't be symbolic, it just had to be out there, you know, and that just, it just seemed, it seemed slightly cynical, so I, I, I eventually soured on, on, on formal art as a thing to do. And um, I actually took a year off from uni. Um, I had a I had a summer job as a, a forest firefighter. 
I was a chainsaw operator for the U.S. Forest Service, and they'd helicopter us into to forest fires and things like this, and, and the pay was quite is that, good. Is that a fire jumper? Is no, I wasn't. I wasn't a smoke jumper. Smoke jumper, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but they they did have to move us around by helicopters yeah. know, to get in from the the base camp into the, the. And there were all these fabulous ex-Vietnam pilots flying around these Huey gunships and stuff like that. So they they were very good at what they did. And, um, and it was a, it was a, that was a wonderful job, and I and I made a whole bunch of money. And I thought I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to I'm going to travel. And so I strapped on a backpack and. And headed off down the the Coca Cola Trail to um, Machu Picchu. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And went overland, you know, all the way through Central, you know, Mexico and Central America. Just thumbing it. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yeah. Spent spent the better part of a year doing that. Oh my God! Hold on, slow down. So, did you walk the trail that that um? It's not the PCH, it's the PC. Is it the the Pacific Coast Trail? Then you walk mm, down. No, no, I, I I went on you know trains, planes, planes and buses, just whatever. trains and buses and hitchhiking and and on the way back actually I did for a while I, I stopped doing anything but walking. I think I walked from um, from the Panama from Panama. I had to take a, a boat around the canal, of course, because you can't walk across the canal. Uh, so from from the Darien Gap in in southern Panama, I walked. All the way, was it to Nicaragua? Costa Rica? Costa Rica. I walked as far as Costa Rica. So, oh my God. About, <laughs> so about, far down. Yeah, about two months of walking, you know, and then I started hitchhiking again once I got close to Mexico because it was still really far. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when you got to Machu Picchu, uh, what happened? Well, you could just, it was much more accessible then. I only know. say that because I know that a lot of people go there to take peyote or ayahuasca and stuff and like drip on mushrooms and just, and because they believe that it was made by people not of this earth. Mm -hmm. And I'm just was wondering if you had that vibe. I actually, um, the, the experiences like the ones that you describe, um, I, I came very close in the, um, some of the, the temples around Oaxaca. Ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had a much more sort of successful transportation there, you know, and, and, and peyote was involved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I just, uh, I, I, yeah, I really, I really felt, um, what can you say, transported, you know, yeah, that, yeah. that this is, there, there is, also, um, Carlos Castaneda, who's subsequently been debunked as a as a total fraud, but his books had a major influence on me, you know. And I, and I, and I, by this time, I was thinking I, I really do have to find a bridge into some sort of spiritual, some sort of supernatural world, you know. And I was trying very, very hard to 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 find visions, you know. And, uh, Succeeded with peyote. Never quite succeeded. You're supposed to be able to, to move past peyote and do it without. You know? Right. <laughs> and some delightful hallucinations with peyote. You yeah. know? <laughs> well, supposedly there's some markings in the earth near those ones near um, Oaxaca that are unexplainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are indeed. There are things that you can only make out the form of them from from rather high up, you know, from uh, you know a height of a couple thousand meters before you can actually see that that is a monkey. Now, how how they did that kind of geometry is um we just haven't figured out how that was done now yeah i'm sorry i'm watching a show at the moment called ancient aliens uh-huh yeah and it goes through all the uh, you know anomalies not that one didn't get a mention actually that i just knew that one from being down there myself but mm -hmm. um like when, when you're talking about japan there's that um just off the south of japan is that that stone structure that's underwater do you mm -hmm. know about that no i don't know about that really. Anyway, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but it's amazing. It's like, you know, under 40 feet of water and it's, it's a, a stone civilization. You can't explain what it is, but it's like a, a structure that mm -hmm. is huge that we can't explain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. it's back to you walking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so that, um, I mean, that, that, was a, that was a wonderful trip. Um, and, and, Part of, you know, like I say, my uh, my fixation on the, the books of Castaneda and, and this sort of the, the 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 journey, the spiritual journey of, of this alleged shaman named Don Quixote. Um, 
a shaman yeah. called Don Quixote, yeah. like the Spanish like, fable. Yeah, yeah, except that he wasn't tilting at windmills. He was he was um, dealing with you know um, imaginary coyotes and, and bunnies and things. Um, and and so I, I this was my this was my um, You know, George of the Beatles, he also decided to stop dropping acid and become spiritual without it. This was sort of my George Harrison moment, you know, where I tried to, to move past, you know, hippie drugs and, and become some some sort of spiritual being, you know. But uh, my knowledge was, was rather limited and rather naive, and I, and I confused um, sort of the spiritual and the supernatural, and, and I, I kind of wanted to, to believe in genies and, and little specters. You know, if I ever saw sort of a blink of light, it's like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, get, my skin would tingle. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> There's something else happening here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was, I had an inkling at that point that, uh, that there was, that chemicals that, 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 Drinking alcohol or taking drugs was was holding me back from something, you know, and I, um, and I tried that for a while. I actually tried to, but without any help, you know. I just kind of on my own tried to to grow spiritually during that trip, you know? and and that uh, only lasted a short time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I. Um, Anyway, I, I it, it was a, it was a good trip, you know, and I, and I think I, I grew a lot as a person during that trip. Uh, I also um, became a little bit more of an adult, you know, and that that my sort of adolescent uh, uh, boundlessness got a little bit tempered at that point, you know. And I, when I got back to the U.S., it was kind of like welcome back to the real world, dude. Oh, yeah. you know, now you gotta get on with your life. Um, came down with hepatitis that I'd picked up somewhere in the, the final legs of that trip and, and missed my second summer of, of firefighting. I actually, I caused, um, I think 600, 600 men had to get gamma globulin shots in the butt because of me. <laughs> What? Gamma globulin is a really viscous liquid, and the dosage is it's like a giant syringe, you know, and, you're, and you have to give it in the butt cheek. But I came down. I came down very, very sick with hepatitis, Hep A, on a fire. You know, I'd already got taken, resumed my position as a as a casual firefighter. We were down in New Mexico at this big fire, and they had you know gangs from New Mexico and Southern California and Central California. I think they had they had prisoners also firefighting there, and everybody who was on that fire had to get inoculated for you know to with hep, with gamma globulin so they wouldn't get hepatitis A. And that was that was because I came down sick on that on that fire, and then that spent the summer convalescing, and that was the end of my firefighting career. And then I went back to college and um, is it majored. That, is it that um, contagious? Hepatitis is very contagious. Yeah. yeah, and and Hep A is is it's sort of the the fecal oral route. It's 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 body fluids, you know. It, but it's you don't have to. I think Hep C, you know, it has to be hypodermic or, or sexual transmission. Hep B is I, I don't know, but Hep A is the 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 lightweight hepatitis, you yeah. know. Um, but it's also one of the most contagious. It's just it's in the water, yeah. basically. Yeah, right. And so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So back then you and then I then I went back to to uni. Yeah. And I declared a major not in art anymore. I decided I was gonna, but it was still a. The, the the environmental movement was was in full flight by this time and and I was drawn to that and so I actually majored in something called conservation and resource studies um, which was um, was kind of cobbled together interdisciplinary you know a little bit of a uh, little bit of botany a little bit of biology a little bit of backyard gardening a little bit of whale watching you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and I did that for a year, and was having a wonderful time. And you know, I, I I enjoyed Berkeley. I enjoyed the people that I lived with. I was tinkering in sort of carpentry and house reno stuff, you know, and and having a lot of fun. Um, and my little sister was at Stanford University, 
And there's an organization at Stanford that was called Volunteers in Asia. It started up by one visionary young man back in the 60s that took a, he was the dean of men at Stanford University in 1963 and some sort of refugee crisis took place in Hong Kong and he took a group of young Stanford students over to Hong Kong to work as volunteers to help provide housing and you know just just social work for these refugees from China and this was such a transformative experience for them that they decided we're going to make this option available to other Stanford students and we're going to establish volunteers in Asia and we'll send people over to teach English or do other kinds of, you know, sort of volunteer work. And this organization grew slowly and, and they were branching out of, English teaching became their mainstay because that's the thing that, you know, Americans could bring without displacing any local talent and, and, and could do in a short time without very much training. And then, but they were already thinking, maybe there's some other things that we could do. And um, B.F. Schumacher, who was a former minister of coal in the UK, had a bit of a spiritual experience himself and, and decided that uh, we're destroying the world with the, the Industrial Revolution and we need to change the way that we produce things. And he, um, and he produced a book called Small is Beautiful, which was the introduction of the concept of appropriate technology. And Small is Beautiful was a very appealing concept and a very appealing book. And somebody in Volunteers in Asia decided, hmm, appropriate technology. That's something they don't have over there, so we're not displacing any local appropriate technologists. Let's send some appropriate technologists over to, to Southeast Asia, and, and they can help people. And so they were looking for their second appropriate technology. There's then over one guy who was making these biogas generators, biogas um, converters or um, digesters, were called, uh, in Bali. And they were looking for their second. And my little sister got wind of this. She knew some people who had gone to Indonesia and come back and um, knew about this. And, and, and she told me about it. And I thought, wow, that sounds really cool. I've been to Indonesia. And, and I sort of grew up on a farm, so uh, I qualify. <laughs> and so I went and, and um, applied and, and got sent to um, Indonesia for two years to a place called Tana Toraja, which is an indescribably beautiful little valley in South Sulawesi. Okay, there you have it. Um, I don't know if you heard the, the poor little dog chiming in. I might have clipped it just beforehand, but... Um, Anyway, when, when I stopped, Craig was really upset. I feel bad because um, the poor dog, uh, and it was super trooper, super trooper dog. Um, uh, we really, Craig was like, we haven't got to the good part of my life yet. <laughs> anyway, but I, I promised him and I promised you that there will be a part two. Um, and I'm looking forward to going back out there and having a chat to Craig. He's just such a good guy, and I enjoy uh, enjoy hanging out. So, anyway, whoever you are, wherever you are out there in the wide world, spinning through space, I hope you're having a good one. Till next time, adios. <laughs> <laughs>